Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. So when, how do you emotionally and mentally process the constant occurrence of tragic events, the, the regular happenings within our own community, even ones that happened this past week, ones that happened the last several months. Like what thoughts do you have, emotions you feel when you're aware that time is short? So I haven't reminded you of this in a while, but we're in a unique section of Luke and some have called it the journey narrative or the travel narrative. It goes from 951 to about 1928. So it's about 10 chapters of Luke is structured around a journey. Um, it's Jesus's way to Jerusalem. And we know the goal of that journey is a cross. And so in this section, Jesus is especially focusing on teaching and training his disciples. They've proven over and over again that they have a lot to learn. They haven't internalized a whole lot that they need to if they will be the followers and even the leaders of Jesus' church that they must be once Jesus passes through his cross, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. So he spends these 10 chapters and really about a year of his earthly ministry, according to Luke, in this way to Jerusalem, this way of discipleship. And it's not direct, it's not efficient, it's not speedy. It's a meandering, windy path that takes a long time, which in itself is instructive for you that your pathway of discipleship is not efficient and direct and speedy. <laughs> it takes time. There are oftentimes windy paths that we walk. So today we're finishing a little subsection of this journey narrative. And that's why we're opened at chapter 12, verse one, because this little subsection goes from 12.1 to 13.9. And this little section is especially concerned with that truth that you and I need to be ready for the coming judgment of God. And that's the major theme in this little section, be ready for the coming judgment of God. And so if you recall, well, and let me just say that our passage concludes this section. And so it's the climax of what God wants to say when he urges you to be ready for the coming judgment of God. So what are some things in this travel narrative and in this portion of it, in our way of discipleship, that Luke records Jesus wanting us to keep in mind with regard to the coming judgment of God? And there was 10 things I think at least we could say from verse one of chapter 12. The first thing in the first three verses, let me just run through it really fast. The first three verses, he says, don't be hypocritical. Don't let yourself slip into hypocrisy in view of the coming judgment of God. Then in verses four to seven, he would say, don't fear man. 
who can only kill your body, but fear God who can cast you into hell. So who are you fearing? Then verse seven, there's a wonderful statement. The third thing he would tell us is, recognize how much you are worth to God, how valuable you are to him. Fourth thing I think he would say is verses eight to 12, in view of the coming judgment of God, acknowledge Jesus now so that he'll acknowledge you in heaven. The fifth thing I think he would say from verse 13 through 21 is don't think your life or the good life merely consists in how much stuff you have. Well, the sixth thing from verse 22 to 34, he says, well, don't be anxious over the things you don't have. And along with that, but trust God for daily provision and store up treasure in heaven. Then the seventh thing I think he'd say, verses 35 to 48, in view of the coming judgment of God, be ready for Jesus's return and be reliable just to do the task God's called you uniquely to do. Just be faithful. And then the eighth thing, verses 49 through 53, I think he would say, Rest in the fact that Jesus came to take the fire of God's judgment for us. And then also realize that Jesus is spreading a fire on this earth right now that divides people around himself. Then the ninth thing, verse 54 through 56, Jesus would say, just like we like to talk about the weather, discern the signs of the time you're living in and the significance and sufficiency of who Jesus is and what he did. Discern it, be discerning. Then the 10th thing, 57 through 59, decide for Jesus now while there's still time. Remember, all of us in our daytimer have a court date and we are fast approaching that court date which is God's judgment, but we have time, settle matters now while you're on the way. 10 things in view of God's coming judgment. And that leads us to the culminating text today, verses one to nine in chapter 13. And it relates to especially the idea of settling matters with God now. What does that look like? What does that mean to settle matters with God now? And in our section, Jesus says it means to repent. So let's read verse one to nine of chapter 13. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. 
And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he, the vine dresser, answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And the grass withers, flowers fade. This strong word, it's also a word of grace to you today. It endures forever. So I have two points. And my points are the need to repent in the face of tragedy, the need to repent in the face of time. So first, verses one to five, the need to repent in the face of tragedy. So in verse 54, Jesus had begun speaking to the crowds again and he gets more directly evangelistic. Uh, He urges those on the fence, those critical of him, those opposed to him to interpret the time, settle matters with God now. And it's, it's a gracious offer because he's the redeemer telling them. So in 13.1, some from the crowds come to him and share some current events, tragic current events. They tell him about some Galileans whom Pilate had attacked and killed in the temple. And he had done this unconscionably while they were offering their sacrifices. And so their own blood mixed in with the blood of their sacrifices that they were going to present to God. And so it's a brutal event, terrible event. The, The effrontery, the sacrilege to execute people right in the temple, right in that holy religious moment of public worship of offering sacrificial blood on the altar. Terrible. It most likely occurred at the Passover since it was at the Passover, that was the only time during the year that a layman would actually take the goat and slit its throat himself and then take the blood and hand it to the priest. It was a Passover lamb. So they're shedding the blood of their Passover lamb and then their blood gets shed. It's also likely these Galileans were mixed up in something. They were probably doing something hostile to the state or maybe they'd even committed some political crime. We just don't know Galileans were known for such acts. And Passover was the time of nationalistic political fervor. But then also just notice that it's probably only a few victims, two or three people. And I just say that because when we think of bad things that happen in the world, sometimes we think of those big things, the invasion of Ukraine, a big earthquake where untold people suffer. This is one of those where it's on everybody's lips, but it kind of comes closer to home because it's two or three people. And the other one is 18 people. So we ask, why do these people from the crowds tell Jesus about these events right now? Like, why this question? And Luke specifies that it's some of those present at that very time. So they're listening to Jesus preach, and they think this is 
what they need to contribute. So what's their reasoning, their purpose? It seems it's prompted by Jesus' talk of God's judgment on sinners, in particular the need to interpret the signs of the time. So they're kind of thinking that through, the signs of the time, God's judgment. And so they come to Jesus asking for the spiritual significance of this tragedy. Explain it to us. And it doesn't seem that they're asking the big question that is common in our day, you know, how can a good God permit suffering? It's an important question. It relates to that, but it's not exactly that question. Nor, you know, they may have come to Jesus and wanted him to give a political commentary. They may have. Um, what does that mean for Pilate and his cruelty in Rome? Maybe, but it seems that they're, the way Jesus responds, they want the spiritual significance of this tragedy as it respects the victims who suffered the violence. What does it mean about them? What does it mean about those victims? Because underneath all that is embedded in their mindset, entrenched in their presuppositions that such a shocking death would only befall someone who is especially notoriously wicked. Like they had to be really bad for something like that to happen to them. Like what did they do? You know, it's kind of similar to what the disciples say in John 9 when they see the blind man, they look at Jesus and go, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? That he was born blind. Or Job's unhelpful helpers that kept saying, Job, what'd you do? That this happened to you? Like, what'd you do? But you notice Jesus completely dismisses this way of thinking. It's not that he does not say there's some connection between sin and suffering. There is. There's a general way in which that's the truth. Proverbs would tell us that. There's ways we can live that's gonna bring trouble. However, Proverbs isn't the only book. And the wisdom literature includes Ecclesiastes and Job too. It's more complex. God's doing all kinds of things through suffering. And so Jesus essentially looks at them and says, look, you aren't supposed to and you can't gauge the degree of person's sinfulness by the severity of a person's suffering. It doesn't pertain to you to do that. You can't do it. In God's governing in this present fallen world, bad things happen to those who are obviously bad and those who are apparently good. It's, it's inexplicable. We aren't given insider information. We're not in the control booth of the world. We don't know what God's doing. But we do know something. And so he directs their attention to what they are supposed to do and what they can do, what pertains to them when such an event happens. What's the spiritual usefulness to it for you? He says, do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you likewise will perish. And so in this way, you just think of what Jesus is doing, his pastoral treatment of this crowd. He's an earthly tragedy, a temporal judgment that overcomes a few people now becomes an illustration of 
ultimate tragedy, eternal judgment that will overcome all people who do not repent. It's to say, if you are horrified by this, be much more horrified by the other. Don't puzzle over these men. You put your house in order. Like, take it to heart. Repent. And then he reinforces this lesson by speaking of another instance, a comparable instance. Jesus was familiar with the current events. And this one's not a tragedy inflicted by humans, it's a tragedy resulting from an accident. So we have both types here. You see, it doesn't matter the source of the tragedy, the spiritual significance is the same for us. He says, of those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders or debtors than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So again, an earthly tragedy that strikes a few people becomes a symbol for ultimate tragedy that will strike all who do not repent, where where perish means eternal suffering in hell. So when you hear something like that, remember the real danger before you all, don't puzzle over the reasons for suffering, put your house in order, repent. It's like there was a reformer in England named John Bradford and he had lived a real wicked life, I can identify with my forebear, and he came to Christ and he was known for his heartfelt repentance and so when he had this journal he kept And it said this, another of his exercises was this. He kept a journal in which he used to write all such notable things as either he did see or hear each day that passed. But he did so, but he did so pin it that a man might see in that book the signs of a smitten heart. For if he did see or hear any good in any man, by that sight he found and noted the want thereof in himself and added a short prayer, craving mercy and grace to amend. If he did hear or see any plague or misery, he noted as a thing procured by his own sins and still always added, Lord, have mercy to me. And it led to an unconfirmed story that when Bradford saw criminals being led out to execution, he would say, there but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. Spiritual significance. It's only grace that we have any day, any day in which we get to repent. And so the need to repent in the face of time, verse six to seven. So Jesus adds to that a parable. He talks about a fig tree planted in a vineyard that calls to be a fruit garden. And so the owner of the vineyard plants it, it matures, and he goes out looking for fruit. There's no figs. He says to the vine dresser, I've been looking for fruit on my fig tree for three years now and I haven't found any. Cut it down because it's taken up space. It's using nutrients that other plants could use. But the vine dresser, almost like he, he likes this plant, like he feels sympathy for this plant, which is kind of a nice detail because it makes you think that Jesus may be that vine dresser in the background. And the vine dresser says, look, be patient, give it one more year of opportunity, like a last chance to bear fruit. I'll give it special attention. I'll loosen up the soil and put fertilizer down around it. Maybe then it will yield good fruit. If not, then okay, you can cut it down. Notice, you can cut it down. I don't want to. So this parable adds some important aspects to the summons to repent. It reinforces, one, three little aspects. 
One, not only do we need to repent because ultimate tragedy awaits if we don't, but we need to repent because time is running out. We can't wait, we can't expect any time. And God's patience is not just unlimited for us. You see, it's like Romans 2, 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Is a point of God's patience. Or 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Like that will of desire, you know, we're not privy to God's will of decree. It never was given to us to figure it out. But what we are privy to is God's will of desire. God looks at you and says, my heart desire, we take him at his word. His heart desire is that you repent. You repent. Two, the fig tree is a symbol of the nation of Israel. So Jesus is talking about judgment to come not just on individuals, but on a nation. On a nation, he was warning that generation of Israel that they were on the brink of losing their covenant privilege and even being destroyed as a nation. Like that's what he's warning them. And so you think, you know, there, there's some differences there, but you think that God can make a national warning. Could he make a national warning? Three, it's a reminder that real repentance brings forth fruit. He's talking about this tree needing to bear fruit. So in scripture, there's kind of a distinction between repentance and the fruit of repentance, but real repentance is not something you can see, but it will result in what you can see. To ch- if repentance is the culmination of our response to God's judgment, if it is so necessary and urgent, the idea is what is it? And Luke's about to talk about that it, throughout his travel narrative. He, it's gonna be interesting, he talks about repentance a lot. Luke 15 is all about repentance. So just real quick, we're out of time, but repentance, the word literally is metanoieo. The etymology means to change one's mind. But it's not just a flippant change of mind, it's to change one's feelings about something, one's resolve and purposes, his orientation of life. So in God's amazing grace, like the source of our repentance is God's grace in our lives. To change our mind regarding four things, regarding our view of God, our view of ourself, our view of our sin, our view of righteousness, like we change. And, and just to know that it's a relational term, repentance is. It's more relationship than behavior. When I, when I learned that, it revolutionized repentance for me. It's not so much turning from doing bad stuff to doing good stuff. It, it includes that, but it's not that at its heart. It's not straining to get better. It's turning from sin because you've seen that God is better. You've recognized that sin won't satisfy and so you turn to God who will satisfy. You recognize little saviors that we concoct in our minds can't hold the weight of our life but the true savior can. So like I said at the beginning, 
Logically, faith precedes repentance. They're flip sides of the same coin, but you're seeing that there is true life and hope and meaning and purpose and relationship that you want. So you say, this, this doesn't do, this doesn't do. And you leave it, leave it aside. And just see the one who's urging us to repentance here in view of tragedy, in view of limited time. He's the very one that's walking to Jerusalem to take the fire of judgment on our behalf. And could there be ever a savior who is more worthy and who proved himself more that he's the one we need and the one our hearts want? And so if we go back to that big question, how can a good God allow suffering? You know, everybody deals with that. Every philosophy, every religion, but none of them can say that their God put himself in the heart of our suffering on our behalf to take away the real consequences of it at the cross such that any hardship you encounter is only a light and momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that, befalls, that will befall you one day. And may that inspire us, repent, leave it behind and turn to Jesus. And God add his blessing upon you, amen.